Okay, tonight, uh, Rabbi Wolby Sr. apologizes for his uh, illness, but Rabbi Wolby Jr. and myself, Alex Veffa, have uh, stepped in to present to you the wonderful world of kosher. Uh, tonight's event was sponsored by Belden Supermarket, who donated all the wonderful food and beverages. In case he wants to hear the recording, do that again. Okay. <laughs> Um, Kosher Awareness Month, which is the whole of March, we have a whole bunch of events, this is one of them, is about showing the people that kosher is easier than you think, kosher is more accessible than you think, and kosher tastes better than you think. These are all new products that went kosher in the last 12 months, or actually new products, and uh, Kosher 101, which we're about to start, is basics, very simple, clear, fundamental understanding of kosher in a way that will make it very simple whenever you go shopping, etc. You have on your chairs a kosher guide to Houston, everything you want to know about Houston specifically, where the restaurants, bakeries are, some basic questions like what doesn't need supervision ever, those are all in there. And the little blue cards that we put out find their home in your wallet, and anytime you're in a supermarket and you see a kosher symbol you don't recognize, most likely it's on here. 97% of what you see will be one of these. This will cover most of what you'll see here in Houston. All right, so without further ado, if you don't take your seats, fire away, Rabbi. Uh, one more thank you. Thank you so much to Rabbi Gabriel Jackson and, and the Bella Jewish Center for uh, opening up their doors for HKA and Torch. Uh, they're good friends, and we're happy to partner with them with this and other events. Mr. Shem, many more. Uh, so the presentation, Kosher 101, is what it sounds like. It's a presentation uh, that's going to try to encapsulate everything that there is about kosher uh, in about 20 to 30 minutes. Obviously, I know people that studied elements of kosher for years and years in yeshiva. There's a lot of details that we're going to be omitting because we want to cover the entire scope of the, uh, of the, of the vast, uh, of, of the vast uh, topic that is kosher. And the goal of the presentation is to simplify and perhaps also demystify something that we all are familiar with. Every Jew knows the idea of kosher. Jews don't eat pigs or we don't have cheeseburgers in the Jewish diet. Uh, but the details and the core principles of what it means, uh, uh, what food is kosher, how is it determined what's kosher, and how does a kosher consumer go about selecting and sourcing foods that comply with the kosher laws uh, that is what we try to assemble here uh, in a, a brief, simple, and succinct um, presentation. So uh, for a lot of you, I look around, I'm sure a lot of people you, you know, are observant or semi-observant or to some degree in kosher, and you may not find the presentation that informative. But even for those that are observed to kosher and know the kosher laws, it's still good to hear a review uh, a little bit. Uh, once a year, we try to do this effort of just, you know, just reinforcing uh, the ideas of kosher and uh, having it a part of what we're thinking in our consciousness. Uh, that's what we do every month. Every March we do the Kosher Awareness Month and now it's March and let's get started. Okay, so let's start first of all with what it means to be kosher. Uh, for the sakes of our discussion, we're talking about kosher uh, with regards to what the Torah uh, tells us, uh, the laws of what Jews can and cannot eat. Uh, the Torah is replete full of mitzvahs, commandments, instructions, and it governs uh, many, many aspects of our lives as Jews. Uh, and one thing that's discussed uh, in several places in the Torah are the laws of what uh, Jews can and cannot consume. Uh, and these, uh, these kosher principles that we have today are the same ones that originated in the, in the Torah uh, and the written Torah and the oral Torah. Now, uh, item number two here is the reasons behind it are not known to us uh, clearly. The Torah doesn't go out of its way to explain to us why. And that's also a principle of many things in the Torah. The Torah tells us, uh, don't take wool and linen and mix it together and wear it as a coat. So uh, this coat's made out of cotton. But, you know, were it to be made out of wool and linen, despite the fact that wool is permissible to be worn, linen is permissible to be worn, if they're mixed together, it can't be worn. Why? Because the Torah says so. Does it make sense to us? No. The kosher laws, um, ostensibly, don't make any sense to us. Later on in the presentation, we'll see that there are practical benefits. But uh, from the get-go, it's important for us to realize that the reason behind this is because it is thus instructed in the Torah. And lastly, the third point, which we'll hammer home today, is that the principles of the kosher 
uh, while they come um, and or, or the uh, immutable principles of the kosher that originate in the Torah uh, today are very important because the food that we eat today is very different than the food our great grandparents ate in the shtetl. Why is that? Because they ate what they grew. Most of the stuff that we eat, look in the back. Nothing there was grown. Most of the stuff that we eat today is, 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 is manufactured, it's processed. Thus, there is lots of ingredients that go mixed together. There's uh, factories. And therefore, the production of food is so complex that makes the kosher industry that we have today indispensable for us if we don't want to starve. If you didn't have the kosher industry today, you wouldn't be able to observe the kosher laws uh, and eat, which is something that we all need to do. Okay, uh, Alex, you have anything to add there? No, um, I, I thought this was about halal. My apologies. Halal, halal okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now uh, a few important uh, little tidbits of, you know, to talk about before we uh, move into the actual kosher laws. Uh, to claim that you're kosher today, there's many regulations in the United States regarding um, the permissibility of a kosher, uh, I'm sorry, of a food manufacturer to claim that they're kosher. They have to indeed be kosher as we define kosher. It's very hard for a manufacturer to write on their label kosher when it indeed is not kosher. Uh, and that is a, a wonderful thing. Uh, we have a variety, a wide variety of, of kosher agencies. Uh, that they provide the supervision and certification of all the kosher products. Uh, they actually go down to factories and they investigate everything that goes into a product and the, the production uh, process and procedure and the equipment, and they uh, decide whether it is deserving of a kosher stamp or not. But when you walk in the aisle in your store, you all you need to do is see the finished product, and if it has one of these labels, then you know that all the due diligence was done and the kosher uh, certification that is applied to the product uh, ensures you that what indeed you have and you can consume uh, is indeed kosher. And this is a nice example. You see the picture at the bottom right is a picture of a kosher McDonald's that they have in Israel. Uh, if you go to any McDonald's here, it's not really kosher. Of course, I'm sure everyone knew that, right? Not kosher. That's right. Uh, but in Israel, because there's obviously a high concentration of kosher consumers, uh, they made an effort to make a kosher McDonald's. So how did they do that? They took one of the kosher agencies, uh, presumably one of the locals. Um, in Israel, they actually have a state-sponsored rabbinate. They provide a lot of kosher infrastructure in Israel. And they went in there, made sure that all the food was kosher, everything was sourced from kosher, uh, kosher uh, products. No milk and meat were mixed. Thus, they were able to give the kosher stamp, and indeed, it is kosher. You can go consume this kosher. Yeah, you have a little, feels a little weird, right? Yes, it might seem a little bit out of place, uh, you know, for uh, the rabbi to go with his tzitzis and, and beard into the McDonald's, but, uh, but it is kosher indeed. Uh, and this should provide enough of a warning for us to assume uh, that we can indeed read the labels and find out if it's kosher. Uh, I, 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 you know, I didn't count these, but this looks like, I don't know, what would you say, guys? 50 different ingredients? Alex, do we know what food item this is? This is some food this item, but it looks like skittles. <laughs> looks like skittles. Oh, wait, wait. Yeah, it does. Flour, 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 like flour, like uh, crackers. Cereal yeah, uh, This is some food. Yeah. Uh, and this is yellow, blue. This is the yeah. sani water. It's, it's the sani. Oh, okay. It's got Yeah, and this. It's got like seven different colorings. Yes. I think there's probably more than one reason. Something that McDonald's sells. Well, what about, doesn't that gelatin make it not kosher? Yes, yeah, so, well, the gelatin, um, uh, uh, um, so the red 40 is made from bugs. Well, this, wait, there's two red 40s. Hey, one over there, one over there. So there was a lot of bugs that died to make this product. Um, and additionally, if you look over here, you'll see natural and artificial flavor, which literally opens up the door to every single possible ingredient on the planet, both natural and artificial. So this is an example of why uh, today, as consumers, we approach products that are already uh, you know, finished and in the package. We have literally no idea what goes in there. Absolutely no clue. Um, and therefore, if we want to consume it, we have to have uh, kosher agencies that will investigate and inspect and ensure that uh, the kosher certification uh, is applied only if the product is indeed kosher 100%.
Uh, why do we need contrary agents? So you look, look at the picture in the bottom left. You can see on the guy's uh, uh, shirt uh, shirt sleeve. This is um, uh, in the in the White House. And uh, for whatever reason, they were having, I guess they had some sort of Jewish function, and uh, they came and they went and they koshered the kitchen. The Obama White House. heard about Purim, and then he wanted to Purim so them. So this true story. Really? No. The Maccabees were sinking. <laughs> he, um, yeah. So this is a, this is an example of what kosher agencies do. It's not just about supervising the food production, uh, but it is uh, koshering, making kitchens kosher even temporarily. Uh, we made a uh, torch. We had a uh, annual dinner in the Western Galleria, and we made the kitchen there kosher. They, you know, the HK comes in. And they, you know, it takes, what, three, four hours? We actually do about six events a month. I'm, I'm the executive director of the kosher. I'm not the rabbi. Um, and we do about six events a month between hotels and caterers. We work with seven hotels and more than a dozen caterers. And every time they do a kosher event, except for a couple of them, we have to come in and kosherize the kitchen. And it takes generally between two and six hours. Um, and, and everyone expects it. It's no hassle. And the hotels are used to it. It's just easy. But... You didn't have the rabbis trained in this. You some other rabbi is going to take them twelve hours, and they got to start production, and it's a whole mess and the headache. It's really it makes it viable. We'll say yes to any caterer who calls us to do kosher. It's just there's a lot more prep that has to go into that. Mm-hmm. I have a question. What can you describe some of the prep that goes into that? So uh, the ovens have to do a proper self clean, and everything has to be cleaned before the rabbi comes in. Often, like you see there, they have to, part of the kashering for a lot of the items is, is immersing it in boiling water. It's not complicated. We don't use blow torches, as the myth goes. Um, and uh, it just, uh, yeah, super, super clean. And then we, we go through the kashering process. <coughs> different equipment goes through different things. Uh, so today, we actually kosherized the Whole Foods in Bel Air. We're going to be doing the guacamole, the salsa, the fruit blends, the fruit juices, the smoothies, the fresh cut fruit salads and fresh-cut vegetable salads, certain ones with certain buggy vegetables. Um, and that's all going to be, from now on, kosher certified at the Whole Foods in Bel Air once we start later in the week. So that actually, there was a guy there, and I saw him today. He was there for four hours outside. There was a big sign that Whole Foods put out. What is this man doing? Koshering our kitchen equipment so we can service more of our customers. So is the self-cleaning thing on a normal oven which superheats it? Sure. Certain ovens, and the rabbi would tell you. Um, a lot of oh, people. Provide, and it also has to be clean. You yeah, to get to rid be. of any. But yeah, you put it on a, a 500 degrees or whatever. And it's it's burn. Yeah, it's the cost of a yeah, that burns the ash. Yeah, yeah, we yeah have that burns everything away. They do for an hour, or even. It's good to go. They do, you know, they have to kosher, like even individuals. Like I remember we used to. Uh, I remember that they used to take the, the, the oven, and it was a dairy oven, and you convert it to a, 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 a meat oven. All you got to do is kosher the oven in, in, so in, the, in the in-between. One service that we have at the, at the Houston Kosher is anybody who's going from a non-kosher kitchen to convert that kitchen kosher will come in and send the staff and take care of that all, and no charge. Uh, but that doesn't apply if you're moving from an apartment to a house. We're not just going to come in and do that conveniently for you. All right. Well, what else do we need kosher agencies for? So like we Everything said... On there. Uh, you can't read the ingredients yourself. Uh, the companies don't put all the ingredients in there. And number three is very important. The rabbis are trained. The rabbis that do this, not me, but other rabbis are trained. Oh, look at that. A little bug there. That's uh, not kosher. Yeah. <laughs> it's a live demonstration of non-kosher animals. Uh, rabbis are trained in food sciences and chemi- oh, chemical engineering. Uh, they are, there are highly complex uh, uh, production methods that are used uh, in modern-day food production. You have to deconstruct that uh, to determine whether or not it's kosher or not. Uh, number four is very important. Um, there is an incentive, a monetary economic incentive, for a, for a company, a food co- a production company, to be considered kosher. We had an example here in Houston whereby an employee at a large facility wanted to use a dairy ingredient to bake a, a par product. And he was scratching off the little D that stands for dairy next to the OU certification on the package so that when the rabbi visited, he wouldn't realize it was a dairy ingredient. The rabbi visited, and he saw, because he remembered the product at another facility was, was dairy, so he knew. And then he looked at it, and then the same day, three of us met with the, with the manager slash owner, and that employee was not there the next day. We told them, we're not telling you to fire the employee, but you have a choice. You keep the certification. Well, the employee, it's up to you. So and there's an the incentive because you open your door to, you know, across the street, there's a new restaurant, Genesis uh, Steakhouse, and it's full every time I'm there. 
uh, it's full. And then it's, you know, and it's especially appealing because it's a kosher steakhouse. So there's an incentive. I'm not saying it's a fish I eat there all the time, but there's an incentive to open your door to all the kosher consumers. Uh, but if that means maybe more expensive meat, uh, maybe you'll have to, you know, be a little bit more fastidious about what ingredients you can and cannot use. Therefore, there is a hot, you know, there's a very important need to make sure that there's some third party that is ensuring that everything is indeed kosher. Okay, so that's why we need kosher agencies. So what is kosher? So kosher foods are going to fall into one of three groups. Either something which is always kosher, no matter what, you can't mess it up. Well, you could mess it up if you mix it with baking, but you can't mess it up. Uh, it, it is kosher. You don't have to think uh, twice about it. There are foods that are never kosher, and then there is the third category, the gray area, where it could be kosher, could be not kosher, depends what you do with it. So let's dig into this. Item number one, these are the things that are always kosher. What is that? I don't see the common denominator of all these items above. They're all natural. They're not, and, and natural and not further processed. Something grows from the ground. Go ahead. Okay, I, I just have a question about this because um, it's a little confusing. What about produce that is genetically altered? For example, for example, corn is. You know, I mean, we have corn now that's genetically altered. I don't think that's a that's a problem. That's not a problem right? I, I I don't know. I've heard different. Uh, but what they inject, uh, like what they well, they use this Roundup Red, like yeah, it's genetically altered. But so I think it's it would still fall under the category of being produce, and it's not it's not processed post it being grown. I think it's a problem. Yeah, they put. You know, they put yeah, they put pesticides and all that stuff on top of it, but that's not, you know, it's not the food, the food yeah. and the corn. Well, the pesticides actually ingrained in it now. Well, either way, that's not what you're eating, you know, you're not eating the chemicals. Well, either way, uh, the, the principle that we want to derive here from the slide is that when something is natural, it grows from the ground, uh, it is produce, and it's not processed in any way, it can be fruit, vegetable, uh, legumes, or whatever. And it is uh, it is kosher. So our orange juice is a great example. So an orange that was squeezed, that's not considered a process that would uh, mandate it having uh, kosher supervision. What about I see on there like some grains? What about like would you consider something processed like flour, or is like plain um, I think they put they put kosher certifications on flours. Flour doesn't need certification. Uh, on flour, I know that the flour does have kosher certification. Some do, some don't, but it's it's not. That's that's it's round. It's kind of like spices as well. It doesn't need. Uh, we said all all spices don't need grains, beans, plain spices that are not in a mix. If you buy ground cumin, it's fine. It doesn't need certification. Once they combine spices, like a uh, Montreal steak seasoning, there's an anti-caking agent that that allows you to pour it out. That doesn't all clump together. And that's often not a kosher ingredient. Right, but if, it, if it's not, nothing is done to it, it's just round up, that, that's no problem. Okay, so that's the easiest thing. Uh, these things are never kosher. The Torah outlines for us different animals that we cannot consume. But not only that, we cannot consume any derivatives of these non-kosher animals. So if you have, uh, for example, the pig, you can't consume its, its milk. Or you have some birds, you can't consume their eggs. Uh, so all these animals, and we'll get to the different categories of non-kosher animals, but all these animals that are not kosher, we cannot consume them. We cannot consume any of the derivatives that are derived from them, be them milk or oil or, um, or eggs or whatnot. And this is kosher when supervised. Everything else, kosher animals. We'll get to what is constitutes kosher animals. But kosher animals, they're kosher, but they have to be processed in a kosher manner. So you have a kosher meat over there. It's kosher, provided that it was processed in a kosher way and supervised by a kosher authority. Uh, all these examples of breads and who knows what could go into bread. You see the bread, you think it's just flour and and uh, flour and water, but indeed there's lots of other things in there. Uh, and who knows? You know, it says natural flavors or some preservatives or whatnot. You have no idea what goes into that. Um, Starbucks is a controversial topic because no, none of the Starbucks actually have kosher supervision. We have the, uh, the Starbucks uh, over here at Meyerland. There's a whole list. If you look at the side, there's a list of food, of drinks that are recommended uh, by the HTA. The the HTA. We, we put it in that Starbucks and checks and balances. They don't have the issue that most Starbucks have. We don't actually supervise the store and, and they don't uh, do anything, but they, they do have the checks and balances. And Rabbi does visit. Uh, but they're not officially supervised. Is that right? 
Right. So, uh, so that so that will be an example of you know where there's certain guidelines. But I, I think that they uh, the, the certain um, national uh, kosher certification agencies they say, hey, if you're just drinking the you know the brewed coffee, it shouldn't be a problem. You know, certain this lattes are recommended or not. Either way, this third category is where uh, you really need the kosher agencies to review all the ingredients, the process, the equipment to make sure that the final product is kosher. Okay, so what constitutes kosher animal, what constitutes a non-kosher animal? So as we all know, uh, the rules for kosher are that uh, for, for beef, for meat, the animal has to have split hooves and chew its cud. It has to have shita. Shita means it's slaughtered in, in the kosher fashion. The blood must be removed. And lastly, it has to pass a very rigorous post-shita uh, um, inspection. But the halacha is, the law is, that for an animal to be kosher, not only has to be a kosher animal, it has to be slaughtered the proper way, you have to, have to remove all the blood, but additionally it has to be a healthy animal. If the animal was not healthy, it had any punctures or holes in any of the internal organs, if it had lesions, if it had injuries, uh, cancers uh, uh, to its internal organs, uh, then it would not be kosher. Uh, now, like the Rambam Maimonides, when he talks about these laws, he, he counts 70 different illnesses that uh, could play an animal and render it uh, unkosher. Now, what happens uh, in a kosher slaughterhouse when they slaughter an animal and they find something wrong with it? Animal had cancer, an animal had some sort of internal injuries. Uh, what do they do with it? What do they do with the animal? They throw it out, you think? No, they pick it up and put it in the non-kosher section. That's what they do. Out of every ten animals that they chef in the kosher manner, only three of them end up on your plate. And so even though all ten animals were checked to see if they were healthy, if they were going to survive another year, um, so you're paying for the rabbis to check those ten, that cost only gets applied to the three cows or three chickens out of the ten that end up on your plate. Hence, really, the slight difference in cost that we have. Yeah, you can't just uh, you can't just you know shoot the animal in the head and kill it like that. You have to you have to have a highly trained, highly specialized shochet. They have to slaughter it and they have to uh, do the post examination, etc. And all those details uh, are uh, very uh, costly. Uh, but the benefit, the fringe benefit, like we'll get to in a second, the fringe benefit is that you know that the animal that you're consuming was healthy. You know that for sure. It's, I thought glot meant. That the extra was. Yes, yeah, so um, this one gets a little bit more detailed. Glot means smooth. So, glot kosher. We've all ever heard the, heard the term glot kosher? Uh, glot kosher means smooth. If, if someone writes on a pizza store that it's glot kosher, then they're full of nonsense. Because pizza can't be glot kosher. It's only for meat. Uh, that means, because there are certain debates as to uh, how smooth the animal has to be, how smooth the internal organs have to be for it to be kosher. So, glot is a higher standard. So, like, they, glot kosher means that they're following the, the most, you know, the most rigorous and stringent standards uh, in applying the laws of, of, of trefa to uh, to the post post shchita inspection of the animals. That's what it means. Uh, okay, so though that's meat. Uh, fish fish does not need to be slaughtered in a kosher manner, but the fish has to be uh, has to have fins and scales. Uh, I don't like fish, but uh, from what I understand, there's lots of different options for kosher fish. Uh, and lastly, poultry, the Torah doesn't give us uh, uh, a criteria for what uh, renders a uh, fit, uh, poultry, a bird, kosher or not. But uh, what it does tell us, it, it names us all the birds that are kosher and the ones that are not kosher. And we can deduce that any bird that's a bird of prey is not kosher, uh, uh, but any one that's not, it is kosher. Uh, then it too uh, uh, needs to have shita and removal of blood. So here's some examples of kosher animals. Uh, there is this misconception that giraffes are not kosher. I used to always hear that um, giraffes aren't kosher because you don't know where to slaughter them. Anyone heard that? Yes. It might be like a northeast kind of thing. You heard, you've heard that? Yeah. A giraffe is not kosher because so we don't know where to slaughter, which is actually nonsense because there's about six feet of kosher area to slaughter. It has more than any other animal uh, a very, very large area where you can slaughter it. But the reason why uh, we don't eat giraffe meat, we can't find any of that at any of the kosher supermarkets in Houston. Or non-kosher. Or non-kosher, I guess, is because it's very expensive. And from what it's we've heard, it's probably endangered as well. It's illegal. Yes, it's illegal, and it's actually not all that good from what we heard. It's kind of like, like the meat's very tough. 
Uh, but pretty much anything that you want to eat, uh, with the exception of obviously uh, uh, pork, uh, you're going to have uh, a kosher variety of it. Uh, buffalo bison was actually uh, somewhat of a little controversy, but it's, it's, it's a kosher animal. Um, there was, about 10 years ago, there was a controversy in Israel because they, uh, they were importing a lot of meat from Argentina. And they, uh, they, fe- they the, I guess the, uh, the, the cow or the, uh, the beef that was local to that, to that, to, to that region had this like hump on the back of its, of its neck. You remember that? Remember this? It was this, I remember this? Oh, as it is, it was this huge controversy. Like, oh, what do we do? Like, they found this this cow that had some sort of hump. I thought, is this a different cow? Is this a kosher cow? I think that was clarified. But um, pretty much any animal that you want to consume uh, is is kosher. Um, different deer are kosher. I don't think we have any kosher uh, deer. Has anyone ever? Do we have that, Alex? Anywhere? Has anyone ever had it? So, I mean, this is like a stupid question, but. I assume there's obviously no manner of hunting that's okay then because you can't kill it the correct way. I mean, you, if I wanted to your venison and I wanted to go, let's just say, get it from the wild, I would have to trap it here and then bring it to the butcher. Yeah, yeah, trap it. You know, it's interesting. The um, uh, one of the, the one of the thirty nine prohibited acts on Shabbat is trapping. Um, because, uh, as we all know, the thirty nine uh, activities that are prohibited on Shabbat mirror the activities that were needed to build a temple. So one of the things they need to build a temple is to write scrolls or to, to get hide. So um, to trap an animal on Shabbat is prohibited because that's how they used to capture these animals because they had to slaughter them when they were intact. They couldn't just shoot an arrow through them. So yes, um, uh, unless you're able to, uh, to trap it, uh, or I guess theoretically you could hunt it provided that you're not going to break any bones or injure it in any significant way, uh, which doesn't seem that uh, plausible. So, uh, so yes, if you want to consume what you eat, uh, um, I'm sorry, if you want to consume what you, what you hunt and kill yourself, well, killing yourself, you might, you might have to outsource that as well, uh, but you'll need, uh, you'll need to trap it. That's right. <coughs> okay, let's move on here. Uh, here's an example of kosher, of kosher fish. Who wants to identify some of the fish in the bottom? Anyone? There's a trout there. Excellent. There's some salmon on top. Tuna, as we know. Middle top. That's right. It says in it. <laughs> on the top, on the top. <laughs> is, that, is, that gefil- is that a, is that a, a freshly filleted gefilte? That's what it looks like to me. <laughs> I think there's a herring there on the bottom. That's uh, salmon. on the top right. Uh, either way, um, there seems to be a lot of, of uh, kosher options for that. And here are some examples of kosher birds. Obviously, we have uh, many birds that we're familiar. We have the geese, um, duck, turkey, chicken. Yeah. yeah. What, what did we say about yeah. pigeons? We said we didn't find no kosher pigeons, right? Yeah, there's pigeon jerky in England. Pigeon there's jerky. So many pigeons in England, we make pigeon jerky. That's not a true story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just playing for time. Okay. So other kosher laws. Um, well, let's let's give a quick recap here. What we said is like this: for something to be not kosher, it has to. F- fall into one of two categories. Either it is a non-kosher animal or a derivative of a non-kosher animal, or it's something that was kosher, but that was either not processed properly or mixed with something that was not kosher as well. It kind of simplifies it. It's not, it's not so many details. There are animals that the Torah tells us are not kosher. We just saw the three classifications of, of different animals and how they're rendered kosher or non-kosher. They're, you can't consume them, nor their derivatives, nor anything uh, that they uh, that they're put into, so like little beetles, like we said, are not kosher. Uh, bugs and beetles, most of them are not kosher. Uh, and if they're crushed and put into some food, that can be not kosher either, obviously. Or it can be processed in a way that's not kosher, where it's mixed with other ingredients or meat that wasn't processed in a kosher fashion. Seems pretty simple. Um, a few additional kosher laws, as we all know, there is the prohibition of consuming dairy and meat together. There is also a prohibition of cooking meat and dairy together. And lastly, it's not on the list here, but there's a prohibition of benefiting from meat and dairy that was consumed. So there was a question once posed, someone allowed to own McDonald's stock. You're benefiting. Theoretically, you're benefiting from all those cheeseburgers. That's a question that was asked. I don't know what the answer was, but that's uh, theoretically a problem. 
Now, where does this come from? Just as a quick aside, the Torah says three times, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Are familiar with that? We had a few weeks ago in the Parsha. Three times it says that. The rabbis tell the real said I have to say three times. One, don't cook it. One, two, don't consume it. Three, do not benefit from it. Therefore, a kosher kitchen will have uh, separate pots, one for meat, one for dairy, separate sinks, cutlery dishes, dishwashers, countertops, and utensils. Uh, a lot of the uh, extra credit study that we do when we learn kosher deal with all the details of what happens if you have a dairy fork and it went into your chalon pot, or you had a, uh, you know, you had a, a spoon that you used for both meat and dairy. And, you know, when was it? What, what kind of pot was it? How hot was the pot? You know, when was the last time it was used for? I used a dairy pot for meat. Well, when was the last time it was used for dairy? What was it used for? All those details are uh, are complex. That's what you actually call up the rabbi. One to six hour dairy break after eating meat, following tradition. So if someone consumes meat, uh, there is a rabbinic edict that they have to wait some time before they were to go on and consume dairy. Uh, well, it depends what kind of what kind of milk. There's certain there's certain cheeses that, that provide the flip side, but usually not. Usually you can have your ice cream, uh, you finish your ice cream, you make sure that you don't have any uh, dairy in your actual, in your mouth, so if you don't have a taste of dairy, you can wash it out, drink, take a drink of water, or you can wait five minutes, and then you can go on to meat. So usually it's not a problem, but there are some cheeses, um, some hard cheeses that are uh, indeed uh, that, that the other, uh, other, uh, other way would apply. And then there's foods, all of the foods that are not meat or dairy are, are parv. Um, fish is parv, by the way. Uh, poultry has the same law of, uh, of meat, with regards to not mixing it with dairy, and that is of rabbinic origin, but as equally as binding. Other kosher laws, and we know we have Passover coming up in a month, and Passover adds a whole other dimension of kosher laws, and that's because one of the uh, primary laws of Passover is not to consume anything, any leavened bread. So any bread that was left to rise... Uh, any um, flour and water that was left uh, um, together in, in a rose, uh, that is prohibited in, on, in Passover, during the eight days of Passover. Uh, thus, cookies, beer, cereal, breads, and even items that have a small amount of grain products are going to be prohibited to consume during the holiday of Passover. Uh, and therefore, there is a burgeoning industry called the kosher for Passover industry, and every year there's hundreds, maybe dozens of new products that are certified kosher for Passover. Uh, it seems like it's becoming easier and easier to not necessarily have that. I remember growing up, I used to always think like Passover like, is the same meal. Eight, you know, eight days, twice a day, 16 of identical meals. That's what in my head it was always like. Uh, and then, you know, then there would be like, there would be one cake, one like kosher for Passover cake. And nowadays, it's, it's just, you know, there's everything there is. You know, they, so they made like kosher for Passover pizza. Just, no, they used only apple juice or matzo mayo and you know, whatever. Okay, uh, if you're Sephardic, by the way, if your Passover is going to be a lot easier because you can have kidney oats and that's other other grain products like rice and, and corn, and that should uh, be a lot easier. <laughs> I was actually given um, I was given a class on Sunday, and one of the guys mentioned it was a class on a totally different topic, but the guy says, "Oh, for Passover, my wife and I decided that we're Sephardic." That's what he said. We decide we, we you know we can't we can't we can't live without uh, rice or corn uh, for eight days. Okay, so here are some food items that are often not kosher. We mentioned already gelatin, certain emulsifiers. Carmine is made out of beetle blood. Uh, that you said is uh, red number forty. Is that right? It's different names, right? Different names. These are the most common uh, reasons why food items are not kosher. Every three companies that call us to go kosher here in Texas, just think out of Louisiana, um, only one of the three can be kosher. Normally, it's an ingredient issue. Gelatin is the most common. As well, sometimes they're just making uh, other trade products on the same equipment. Um, cheese has got a lot of requirements on the kosher, so cheese is just uh, by it certified. Uh, Beetle blood carmine in that yogurt plate that's what makes it red. A lot of yogurts use it. The red Starbucks frappuccinos used it until a couple of years ago. They switched out of it because of public pressure, but. Yeah, wasn't uh, M&M's. M&M's for many years wasn't kosher because they used the... Uh, I think it was M&M's. Uh, they used the carmine for the red you know, candy cover to the chocolate. Um, what, what is it about the gelatin that makes 
Because it comes from different uh, from animals. Ah, uh, yeah, it's from different. Uh, which animals they come from? Mostly pigs is cheapest, but then fish has to come from a kosher fish in Israel. Every time you see, you take any product and they make it kosher in Israel, why they just switch out fish gel to be more expensive. But hey, it's the problem. That's kosher fish. And fish don't have any requirements. And like we said, um, if anything like the non kosher animal and any of its derivatives are going to be non kosher. So if, if, you know, if there's some oil that comes from the, uh, the pig, it's not going to be kosher. Uh, facility equipment uh, produces non-kosher. So Alex mentioned last time that uh, there are certain facilities that we have <coughs> that are producing uh, tacos, right? It's tacos. And they have kosher runs, and they have non-kosher runs on the equipment. But the rabbis come in, either the, either the rabbis come in and kosherify before they do the kosher run, or they have designated equipment that they use only for kosher. But that's obviously why you need that go-between to ensure that everything is kosher. Some foods have high bud contamination. So if you can consume a food, but it has mixed in with it other bugs, and those bugs are not safe for consumption uh, under, under kosher laws, uh, they would not be able to uh, pass the kosher test. Uh, this is shocking. But according to the FDA, the average person eats a pound of insects per year, mostly mixed into food. So the idea being that the, co- the standards... Vegetarians consume much more than that. So what's actually interesting is that the, uh, the, the, the standards that the kosher agencies are going to have are more rigorous uh, with regards to contamination than the FDA has. So you have a nice, uh, a pretty, pretty disgusting fact. But peanut butter is allowed on average of thirty insects parts per hundred grams uh, in order for it to still not be considered contaminated. Um, but the kosher, uh, the, you know, one of the fringe benefits, like we said, of, of consuming kosher is that the standards that they have for ensuring that the bugs are not going to make it into your into your uh, uh, into your uh, consumption. Uh, are are more rigid, rigid uh, and rigorous than the FDA will. Have. So is the kosher standard for peanut butter zero parts? Per no, no. So you, what, you, what do they do in uh, in in Jif and Skippy? Um, yeah, I, listen. When if, you if, get that crunchy peanut butter, <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, the kosher, the kosher, the kosher, they have their standards as well. I'm saying, could you ensure that not a single uh, bug ends up do. in? Maybe they do, but um, you know they have they have zero parts or they. No, I'm 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 sure I'm sure it's it's. I know with honey companies, when you kosher certify a honey company, which we went into three of them already, um, you filter out all the bees and wasp legs. That's what happens when they get the honey out of the combs and all the bugs that come with it. We just make sure the filter is good enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's some other. According to the laws of conscious, bugs are absolutely forbidden. Eating the insect violates more Torah prohibitions than eating ham. So we always look at, at ham or pig as being like the paragon, the, the archetype of, uh, of the non-kosher, while consuming a tiny little microscopic bug, well, not microscopic. Um, that's a whole debate on its own. Uh, in, in, uh, in Brooklyn, there was this uh, uh, brouhaha about 10 years ago about the water they found these microscopic little animals, you know, in the water itself. You couldn't taste them and see them unless you were using a microscope. So the question arose, do you have to filter out these tiny microscopic uh, insects when you can't actually see them? Is it considered a halachic problem when it's so small that you just can't see with the naked eye? But I remember, like, a lot of people, they buy the, the filter, filters, some filter, Jewish filter company made a lot of money off that and sold these filters that, they, that just oh, that plug. Uh, well, it's, uh, Jews do well with filters, right? Uh, okay, so here's some more, um, some more information that's kind of scary. Asparagus, as long as they're infested, 10% or more of the stalks are infested with six or more insects. Pretty crazy. Uh, okay, so this should... Everything, everything. Well, and there are some... This is also another important thing for bringing that up. Even if you have something that has kosher certification, it may be contingent on you doing inspections. Like lettuce, there's no way unless it is, you know, is is it is, 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 it was grown in a hermetically sealed environment 
There's no way for it not to have any budge or not have the risk of any budge. Thus, even if you buy kosher lettuce, you, uh, you should follow the processes of, of cleaning it or inspecting it to make sure that it doesn't have budge. There's such a, 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 uh, a high a likelihood of it being contaminated that uh, even if it is kosher, uh, you should do those inspections. Which I know um, my wife, when she does, she checks the lettuce, um, she finds buds in it all the time. Strawberries are another example, you know, very high contamination rates. We have we have two companies here in Houston which we kosher certify, they pre-cut veg and fruit, um, and one of them tried three times to do a bromine lettuce run good enough where there was zero bug contamination that they could put a certification on it, and they couldn't get it. And they triple washed it, triple washed it with this giant tumbler. It's incredibly hard. I mean, there was, when I was living in Israel, there was this one rabbi that was called the Bud Rabbi. Because that was his expertise. It was like all the different food items and how to inspect it. And there used to be a line that he used to say, allegedly, uh, he used to say, I made a pact with the bugs. I'm not going to eat them now. And they won't eat me after I'm uh, interred and I'm buried. That he wrote all the books and gives all the seminars how to how to how to ensure that you remove the contamination. Well, here's some examples of what these things look like to just freak you out. Um, Alex uh, said last time that the thrips on the on the, on the on the left are the most common. Okay, natural flavors. You'll say, "Hey, it's all natural, right?" It could be all natural, yet to be 100% not kosher, right? The pig is a natural. You know, it wasn't produced in a lab. But it's still not kosher. Bugs are natural. Bugs are very natural. Um, and, you know, from the oranges to the orange juice, it goes through some process like that. And who knows what goes in, what goes out. Thus, it requires kosher certification throughout. Yeah. Here's a great example. Like, you buy in the store the finished product on top. What goes into the product could be any one of thousands of different ingredients. And, you know, using, uh, you know, who knows what kind of flavors or... Uh, chemicals or whatnot that, to make the final product. So what the kosher agency does is they actually go, you know, go get get down and dirty with the food production and go to the facilities and go to the factories and inspect all the ingredients and uh, you know the in, and delve into the complexities of the food production and they can tell you what we're doing. If you look at the top right, you'll see a little OU there. There you go, little OU. They actually did all this research. They went to the you know, they saw how they're doing, what ingredients are growing, and what processes are being done uh, uh, to the uh, to the ingredients, and they determined that it is in the, it is indeed kosher. If we didn't have them, we would no, we, there's no way we could consume such a thing like that. Uh, like we said, there are some uh, fringe benefits of keeping kosher. The reason why we keep kosher is instructs us, uh, but generally, uh, kosher food is, is healthy. We know that uh, uh, the killing of kosher of kosher animals are humane. In fact, every kosher animal has its vital signs, both vital signs, by its throat, while every non-kosher animal has one vital sign by its throat and one by its neck. Thus, the death of a kosher animal is instantaneous, while the death of a non-kosher animal is significantly less humane. Uh, when you eat kosher, kosher food's a little more expensive. You could avoid obesity. That's Alex's joke every year. You try not to eat bugs, and you'll never, ever eat horse meat. We know that there was a scandal a couple of years ago in Ikea where more than 50% of their meatballs had horse meat inside of it. That's disgusting. So this, uh, this slide will give a demonstration as to what inroads the kosher uh, movement has made in major, major companies across uh, America, across the world. You look and you see, you know, a lot of red companies. It's either because, you know, I guess, you know, maybe. A bad day. Is, that, is that right? <laughs> but this kind of gives you a demonstration. Like, these are the major, major players. And they do it because it's economic for them, because uh, it addresses an enormous audience of people that are interested in it. Uh, but this kind of shows, like, keeping kosher today in America is not what it was. It's very easy, comparatively. It's never been an easier time to keep kosher because of how mainstream and how ubiquitous kosher food is. Who buys kosher? So it's not only Jews. Of course it is Jews. Uh, but um, like Alex mentioned, 
uh, uh, Muslims that keep the halal laws, the, the Muslim laws of, uh, uh, of, of dietary consumption, they can rely on kosher as well. The kosher is, is, is more exhaustive than the halal, so they just rely on us. Uh, but other people, um, religious, different other religious groups, people that want to avoid uh, lactose, vegans, vegetarians, people who like kosher food, and of course, all the famous uh, people on the right side of the screen. Yes, go ahead. There's no question about halal. Is it also, does it go the other way? Absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you cannot rely on halal for, for kosher. Because like we said, it's more, it's more uh, uh, strict. The kosher laws are more strict. So it's, it's, more, it's more, and more exhaustive. Kosher by the numbers. So there are millions of people that are kosher consumers in America. That does not mean that there are millions of exclusively kosher consumers, but people that look out for kosher. There's thousands upon thousands of kosher products. Any grocery you walk into America will actually have a kosher aisle. Uh, but even doesn't kosher aisle, even, even the rest of the aisles, the vast majority of the packaged foods will have kosher. Like we said, the kosher movement has matured to the degree where there's kosher everywhere. Most products that you have in your pantry, even if you're not fully kosher, inspect them. Check it out. You know, and Alex guarantees that you'll have a minimum of what, 80% of them already be kosher. Most of us are kosher most of the time already uh, because that's how ubiquitous it is. It's so cheap, comparatively, for these companies to go kosher and they're able to attract such a wide audience that they most of them just just do it because it's it, you know it's beneficial for them. It's not so expensive and it is uh, it is scalable to the degree where uh, whatever they pay could affect uh, millions of products across supermarket shelves uh, across America. In Houston, we have Randall's, Belton's, Kroger, and Costco, um, Central Market, Ben and Jerry's, of course, all the restaurants that we have. The fantastic restaurant across the street, highly. Highly advise everyone take their significant other on their uh, birthdays, and once you go once, you go back. Fantastic. Yes. So if there's no hachshur, uh, but I guess the, the food. I, th- I, th- I think that the um, hachshur in the store. The sticker on the well, box. yeah, but uh, not the entire store, like you said. No, read, that, read the sticker and explain. But what there's no supervision in the store itself, but in the production facilities uh, where the ice cream is 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 produced. They have supervision there. And the code? Oh, it says. Yeah, it's, it's a reliable one. Yeah, uh, Menchis, by the way, has to be removed. Now it's got to remove that because they um, yes. they uh, withdrew them uh, their, themselves from the kosher they supervision. Unfortunately. But either way, this kind of underscores. So this, uh, this underscores kind of how easy it is for us in Houston, how lucky we are to have so many different kosher options in all the major uh, kosher, uh, major supermarkets. Um, it, like we said, the, the, the purpose of the talk is to present an overview of what kosher is and how a kosher consumer goes about ensuring that the food that they consume is kosher. And this kind of demonstrates kind of how easy it is. You know, Randall's has an enormous, enormous kosher uh, uh, kosher aisle and a kosher meat section, Kroger's, Belden's, Costco, of course, has its kosher foods, uh, etc., etc. So that, so that's that. Um, if this is new to you, uh, you could feel safe that you know the basic framework of what kosher is and how you go about maintaining those laws. Uh, if you've heard this before, this once again is a recap. It's a way to, you know, encapsulate the kosher industry and how a kosher consumer goes about. Uh, sourcing their food, uh, but lastly, it should reiterate the principle that keeping kosher today is easier than it ever was. Keeping kosher in Houston is something where once you get in the habit of doing it, it becomes uh, second nature. You have to think twice about it. And are there any other questions? I, Alex, question. yes. Increase the meat. Absolutely. <laughs> Which one of them seems dubious? That's that. Thank you all. Any other questions? Thank you. Okay, go ahead. I was lost. Well, there's a joke there. Really, there was a joke there. Oh, sorry. I apologize.
<laughs> yeah, go ahead. It's funny the Starbucks thing is because I see them making these bacon, egg, and sandwiches. Yeah, so the real problem with Starbucks is not necessarily that the, that the coffee is not kosher. Coffee is kosher unless it's, unless it's flavored. Right. The problem is when they're going to clean or um, uh, clean the, uh, the equipment. So they just put them all into one into one dishwasher. dishwasher where the kosher and the non-kosher or the Pepsi kosher and the non-kosher mix, thus rendering the equipment non-kosher. So kosher food that's produced in a non-kosher environment or non using non-kosher dishes will adopt the status of the, of the equipment used. I hear some uh, examples of common acceptable kosher symbols. On the top left, you'll see the OU, which is the, uh, the biggest uh, across America. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and then we see next to that the HKA. They do all the local stuff, all the local restaurants. I apologize, I'm going to walk through this again. Sorry. All the local restaurants uh, have the HKA symbol. Other things you'll see, basically, this will cover almost everything like that you that need. One very important, BKA, uh, so, and you have those cards if you'd like to take the cards with you um, to have it as a handy guide for uh, for comparing it with the uh, symbols you'll see on kosher on the on the foods. Oh, here we go. Take the kosher pantry challenge. Go home after this and open your pantry. You will find between seventy ninety percent of what you have there uh, uh, that does not have animal animal derivative is already kosher. If you're on, we'll take you to the kosher restaurant for lunch. I'm looking forward to that. I don't approve that. Uh, you don't. You just will we'll, we'll take you by your word for it. And this is the joke, Alex, that you were asking about. And the woman's asking for mammals that don't chew their cud and have sloven hooves. She doesn't realize she's a Indian restaurant. Is that right? Is that the joke? That was the actual joke. Hilarious. Literally hilarious. <laughs> So that's that, guys. We're educated, and now we could go about, uh, you know, either taking on some element of kosher if we would like, uh, or, you know, just have a clearer picture about the laws of kosher and how we go about uh, fulfilling them. Thank you so much, and please uh, partake in all, the, in all the various kosher delicacies. That we Sunday have is a chili cook-off. We'd love to see you all on the JCC the entire day. It's an incredible event. The whole town will come out the biggest group event of the year. You should participate. Even if you don't like chili, there's tons of stuff to do, and there's tons of booths.